Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology and life. Hello there, I'm Bruce Daisley. I'm Ellen Scott. I'm Matt Cook. So when I say we're a podcast about workplace culture, psychology and life, our objective every week is to, to get together and reflect on the way that work impacts us or how the, works, the world of work's changing. What we're trying to do is alternate episodes between work chats where we discuss some of the things in the news and try and reflect and give our different perspectives on them and then interviews with people who are helping to shape our knowledge and our learning on these things so uh, we're going to try and get a balance between these things work chat is what we're going to go for this week if you're interested in some of the other broader conversations about how workplace culture is evolving you might want to check out there was an episode about the culture at Tottenham Hotspur a couple of weeks ago we've recently gone deep on discussions about psychological safety and chatting to Amy Edmondson who's probably done more research on that than anything else and we got wonderful feedback from our discussion with Catherine Price on her book The Power of Fun are you having enough fun at work so Hopefully, you'll find plenty to get your teeth into and discussions about how to make work better. We've got a conversation episode today, so we're going to be sort of reflecting on some of the big workplace culture stuff in the news. And uh, th- there was there was one thing in particular that really caught my attention. This piece of news that you might have seen, I, I think the way that probably organisations go is that quite often organisations especially when there's difficult times, they sort of, they dwell towards one direction or another. And so quite often when businesses are in difficult financial times, the finance director seems to be running the show and costs are cut and jobs are cut. And then sometimes organizations find themselves in more complex legal difficulties. And you might have seen this story this week that ITV are asking staff to declare friendships to each other. And, and the, the first thing that you might notice when you see it is you think, okay, declare what? Sorry, relationships, I get it. But um, the the report, and it was in various places, it was in The Guardian, it was in the, the Daily Mail, they've asked employees to declare friendships to each other. And I just wondered what your perspective on that was. I mean, immediately, it's definitely overcorrection, isn't it? It's going, okay, we've had this problem. How can we sort it and make sure it never happens again? Okay, quick, let's just put in this thing of any relationship that's possibly... I can speak on this as someone who was in a workplace relationship. My partner and I met through work. Um, We've been together for coming up to seven years, and we're working together for the majority of that time. So I have that experience of going, okay, 
probably we do need to tell people about this. And what we actually did was I told my manager at the time, just so he was aware that there was no like conflict of interest. But I think even then the question was, at what point do you need to tell people? Because it's not as simple as, okay, one day we're colleagues and now we are something other than colleagues. There's progression. So I, I don't know. I'm Even with this friendship thing at ITV, it's like, at what point does something become a friendship that you need to declare? That's it. But, but, well, just on the relationship side of things, I think most of us have worked in places where at the Christmas party, it seems like these are relationship unveiling, that all of a sudden that these two colleagues who didn't appear to know each other very well, suddenly they're openly snogging in front of people. You're like, oh, right, okay, we're being signalled something here. But the... Um, so I've sort of, most of us have, I think most people would agree that relationships, especially if there's a power differential, relationships need to be probably revealed and, and yeah. be upfront. But the, the complexity of maintaining a BFFs list, is that a post-it that you keep it on the edge of your desk that you sort of, how do you signal that you've got friends in a workplace? It seems far more complicated. It feels like a real clash between the messy reality of life and the legal HR's desire to neatly categorize things into boxes that can be protected. In friendships is almost, yeah, an outrageous overcorrection. And you can see where it's come from because they're so terrified that anything like this could happen again. But it does feel like everyone gets punished for one person. Uh, one person's behavior with that kind of reactionary overthinking and life yeah just is is a lot more messy than uh, tick boxes and categorization you're certainly not going to be able to soft launch any partners or any relationships <laughs> under this new system to, to Ellen's point about overcorrection I've seen a few of these things before I remember I worked in one organization that used to sort of famously have big award ceremonies like and the way they did anything is that annually there was like magazine of the year award or radio station of the year awards there were these big sort of moments celebrating success and there was a company magazine that often featured people you know holding aloft drinks and and cheering and one person went to HR when he was being disciplined about something else and he said the culture here is drinking look at this the the magazine the company magazine fetishizes drinking and is it any wonder that I've done a bad thing because I was drinking and so as a result the company sort of thought yeah well, it's hard to argue with those things and they suddenly tried to unpick all the elements associating the culture of drinking and I, I've witnessed other things like this someone told me that Oracle the American technology company had a really clear rule that they didn't want employees to uh, be Facebook friends with each other or Instagram friends or to, to connect with each other on social media. And you could only presume that somewhere in the company, there'd been a lawsuit and the lawsuit had been that someone had been going through someone else's private photos or that you know, there had been so, I, I don't, I don't want to just extrapolate Allegedly. too far. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you can imagine that something happened that led to a, a legal boss saying, okay, what we need to do is we need to mitigate risk here. Let's just prohibit all of it. But what you end up with is a version of work that, it's actually impossible to operate. You can't run a workplace like that, that no one knows anyone else's middle name or whether they've got a pet. You can't run a workplace like that. I do get where it comes from, though, because I've been in manager positions before where I've had employees come to me and go, this person isn't following me on Twitter. 
and they're being really upset about that. So there is right, definitely an issue of if everyone else is friends or you can see these friendships forming and you're left out, it can cause such massive issues that it makes sense to then go, okay, we'll just get rid of it all. No friendships, nothing beyond work colleague relationships. It doesn't work that way, but I can completely understand the instinct for it. It is so transactional in a way that isn't it is yeah true to life and I, when you're saying Bruce you know almost a reaction of from, from legal oil if we can just do this and then people just have this transactional relationship it also just misses how we work well together it feels like a very traditional economics of this person puts in their labor force and we get this output rather than all the stuff that we talk about how you know psychological safety is built around friendships will be a fundamental important piece of there being trust like you can't ask for trust and say but by the way you can't trust someone enough to follow them on Facebook they seem almost diametrically opposed like this protection and then also this desire for productivity or even just a a thriving workforce yeah did you have a good weekend please don't ask me about my weekend yeah you are not (laughs) you are not entitled you do not have clearance to ask me about my weekend maybe you do frame it in it's uh how did your weekend help serve you this week? <laughs> what, what positive things did you get up to that's boosted your well-being such that this meeting will run more efficiently? The direct wording said that the employees needed to declare relationships where a relationship is a friendship, sexual or romantic connection, or a family relative. I kind of get, oh, I get, I get the family relative part. You know, if if your uncle suddenly is a, is the decision maker on something, you probably do do need to declare it. But it just does. Anyway, the, the complexity of running that, I suspect, will be a subject for derision to some extent. You know, like you, you think, oh, well, how will we make that work internally? One of the things that frustrates me about it, as somebody who works in people and culture and has, you know, you therefore partner with HR. HR is often in a battle to, you know, there's tension between protecting the company, which would be the very cynical view of HR, but often what it was traditionally, you know, essentially is more about protecting the company than about people. But then many of the people that work in modern HR who who care deeply and passionately about people in the business and this tension between protecting the company and, you know, serving the people's best interest it i could just imagine that many of the people maybe in the hr department when they were having that discussion with legal just kind of head in your hands like oh my god i, I you know it's hard to put up a mm. defense against the legal department but certainly it starts to draw the line between okay well you seems like you're doing this to protect the business not for us and it seems like there's no clearer example of that than saying you can't have friendships here, or implying you can't have friendships. So yeah, it's, it's upsetting almost just cause I can, I, I feel for my, my HR brethren who are going, Oh, for God's sake, you know, we try so hard to create great workplaces for people and to often argue against, you know, we're not just doing this to protect the company and then things like this happen. So yeah, a lot of sympathy for people out there in similar situations. There were two other things in the in the news this week that I think extend that, that really illustrate the complexities of 
the HR job or the the organisational job right now. Um, there was a BBC story I've linked to in the show notes saying that BBC staff were getting given help for stress levels. And that was working on a number of levels, really. That was, number one, I think news organisations are finding themselves regarded as as being the battlefronts of culture wars and, and sort of political debates. And so to, to some extent, no matter what big news organisations put out, or what role the people who work at them are, are, are taking, um, they're being scrutinised, and I think scrutinised is probably a fair thing, but the, the stresses of that are extreme. But in addition, the people working at these places are having to witness and observe grotesque footage and, and horrific footage. And so just the job of those organisations is becoming harder. And th- that, for me, was simultaneous. There was a story I've also linked, which was about uh, moderation staff at Facebook. And I think this was in Spain. Um, they were bringing a legal case because for every time you see something bad on social media, someone who moderates at these platforms has seen something an order of magnitude worse, and they've seen horrific things that didn't make the cut and the safety cut. And look, I think all of these things serve to say that, you know, the the challenges of HR are getting harder and harder because the experience of work for a small group of people is probably more stressful than ever before. I don't know if you saw those pieces. Mm, Yeah, and I definitely felt them quite heavily. I think working as a journalist, I'm quite lucky in that, I do more lifestyle and like lighter journalism. Um, but I see the impact on my colleagues of covering hard news. And, you know, again, my partner works in video journalism. So it is the kind of front line of seeing the worst videos that agencies will put out and then having to make the decision of, okay, I'm not going to put that on the website for everyone to see, but him still having to see it. And I don't know what the solution is because at the moment it seems to be just this is part of the job we'll have to get on with it and then eventually those people will have to take some time off or they'll quit and just leave the industry that seems to just be the solution I'm air quote solution at the moment I don't know how they do it I think um people can do things like okay we're going to put in trigger warnings around stuff and take people off certain triggering topics. Um, I don't know if you saw a while back in the New York Times um, got in some hot water actually for saying that certain reporters wouldn't be allowed to cover certain stories because of their own personal experience with it, because they would see it was triggering. Um, and there was a lot of pushback against that. But again, you can kind of see where it's coming from of going, we want to protect these people from really distressing upsetting stories for them personally so I guess my response is just I read it saw it and went again I have no idea what the solution to this is it's just really difficult and Facebook's been here before I remember seeing stories like this I I feel like almost 10 years and they've paid out settlements before I think for psychological damages related to content moderation in terms of a solution I think from what I'm seeing is people saying, well, AI in the sense that it can recognize issues and, you know, certain types of banned things, it can start to learn from it. And then you also just run into all the problems with bias around AI. If you're seeing certain images, what is it extrapolating and what is it automatically then banning? It feels like you'll always need some level of human interaction, but what a, yeah, what a, brutal 
thing to have to go through. And yeah, where does it lie in terms of on the company's responsibility for for this versus the role? Certainly companies can be doing a lot more than they are, but I guess if this is a if it's described in the role that that's what you do, yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah, and and I think what gets missed is how some of these exposures can be really dehumanising. There was a really fabulous novella that I read, I think, earlier this year called um, We Had to Remove This Post by Hannah Bevotes. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, it's a really readable book. I worked for a long time in social media, and it was the closest to an accurate description of the dehumanising nature of working in those jobs where you're given 10 things to assess every minute and so you've got to make a judgment call of whether something is is safe or not and often you you're not given enough time to do it um and the, the challenges of that i mean very adjacent i don't know if you watched the uh the uber butler documentary about amazon last week and uber butler sort of this um this provocateur and he's made some fabulous stuff for vice in the fa- past where he broke into Paris Fashion Week or he, he, he made his shed the number one restaurant on TripAdvisor, yeah. Oh, the TripAdvisor. Brilliantly iconic provocateur. And he did something, he, he did a sort of an expose of, of Amazon last week. But really, you know, at the heart of it was just trying to illustrate that a lot of the things that we love that are giving us incredible convenience in our lives have got un- invisible victims to them. And, you know, there's often, it's not really a class hierarchy, but there's a, it's a, cl- a hierarchy where some jobs are just the almost invisible worker bees to, to make the rest of our lives as agreeable as they are, really. 100%. I think a really good personal example of that is last week I got very angry and got into a fight with um, a, uh, I think it was delivery or just eat cyclist who was cycling in a very dangerous way and basically crashed into someone. And I really kicked off about that. But then afterwards, when I got home, I was thinking, well, probably why they were doing that, why they were driving so unsafely is because the way they're paid is going to be based on speed. They need to be Mm. doing that. They feel like they're forced to do it. And I have never thought about that when I've been ordering, you know, McDonald's to my door and complained that it's taken a bit longer than perhaps I would have liked. It's really confronting to start actually assessing that and assessing who is behind these easy, enjoyable things for all of us. It's so true. I had a delivery of something today that had a delivery window and it was it was significantly late on it. And exactly exactly as you said, I think because I'd watched that Uber Butler thing last week, I, w- I just had a degree of empathy that this stressed-looking guy turned up. I wasn't going to vent at him being late, but I was more thinking, man, I wonder what this guy's story is mm-hmm. here. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to get my money off that big corporation, though. <laughs> Although I guess the implication is, does that then trickle down to that driver? That's it, mm. isn't it? There's, there's no direct line between how you can make his job better with also sort of trying to understand the complexity of what's going on, I guess. Well, I guess we're leading to a wholesale redesign of our ideology and uh, economic system. But we'll maybe save that discussion for another episode. It's interesting, though. I think to, to, to try and have those things in your mind, isn't it? To try and think of, wow, the invisible choices that we're making that are re-engineering other people's lives. There's a term I come across a lot on Reddit, which is called late stage capitalism, which is essentially apparently where we are, but it's the excesses and the extremes of capitalism 
uh, taken yeah to it to its most extreme, which results in things that we're seeing at the moment. And it seems like I quite like the fact that it's called late stage because it feels like there's maybe a promise of of something after. Where did you where did you see that on Reddit on the anti work Reddit? Oh, that's another one that I love frequenting and <laughs> anti work jobs late stage capitalism. It essentially yeah illustrates the absurdities of free market economies just you know taken to their most ridiculous but yeah if anyone has a a, a bit of time they want to spend in a rabbit hole they want to go down uh reddit r uh, forward slash late stage capitalism or anti-work okay okay yeah the, <laughs> i i've i've taken a look at the um the anti-work one a lot because at one stage <laughs> i don't know if you saw this the uh, a representative or a, someone who chose to represent anti-work went on i think tucker carlson when he was still on fox news or went on one of the channels and uh, and gave such a bad account of their perspective basically just set himself up as this sort of demonic figure in the eyes of fox news viewers um that there was like there was huge wars amongst the anti-work people on reddit very niche very niche into into fighting but uh it, it was it was interesting to watch from the outside now i had a couple of people get in touch with me this week sort of asking for perspectives and I thought this was an interesting thing for, to discuss um one one person got in touch and said uh, he he works in an environment where they wrestle with how to implement flexibility in a fair way so specifically he said he works for a bus company and because the majority of the employees need to drive buses so they need to be present they need to be uh customer facing it meant that the the rest of the organization had resolved to have five days a week in the office and and it was just asking a perspective of that of how other organizations were dealing with that challenge of had of having uh, customer facing people who can't have flexibility i just wondered in your both of you your perspective on on how other organisations are addressing that or what the correct answer that is? I have no words on the correct answer, but I can say that I definitely feel the risk of the unfairness factor. I think I've seen that a lot of going like, well, this person gets to work from home or like this person gets to take, you know, four days off or et cetera. And that really does build resentment on such a deep level it can be quite harmful. I don't know if Matt maybe has more of the solutions and examples of how people are doing it well. I think the first thing to raise before diving into it is the tension between culture and market competitiveness. Mm. Like You can't design a perfect ideal company culture that doesn't also have to interact with other imperfect cultures at different companies. And if you think about talent moving across the market, there will always be a clash or pretty much always or often be a clash between your culture and then the market. So some examples of that might be we're looking at designing or redesigning a bonus system with a company and we're having to address the tension between, based on the company's values, what the ideal situation would be which might be, for example, perfectly flat. Everyone gets the same bonus because we're all equally putting in and contributing and the bonus is based on culture rather than uh, performance and, and all these different things. But then there's also a tension that many of the people that they are wanting to hire at a senior level expect a certain percentage to be tied to their performance because that's what they get elsewhere. So there's this 
tension immediately between what do we think is right for our culture and will be best for our people and oof okay but we also need to attract people in so yeah i guess the first thing i just want to raise up is there's going to be this tension between you designing your ideal culture and then it kind of hitting reality and having to get talent from elsewhere when i was thinking about this example with the bus company obviously i don't know any more context but i was thinking in the absence of a clear culture system. So purpose, values, behaviors that all ladder up and deliver on a mission. People will probably fall back to a direct comparison of what they can see to try and get a sense of, are we all in this together? Which essentially is what you're hoping to achieve with your culture system in different ways. I think if you've got a clear mission, values, behaviors, and then you can see how the different roles are all contributing in their own way. And Ellen, you mentioned uh, kind of this fairness. It's interesting because I, it's possibly a odd thing to say. I don't know if I believe in fairness in that sense. You're anti-fairness. <laughs> the quote Breaking is going to be taken out of context. <laughs> Matt is anti-fairness. Uh, I guess I don't believe that things should be averaged out to make mm. things fair. Kind of if I can't have this, then you can't have this. Um, because I think then you end up with what we saw earlier is a legal thing around, or we can't have friendships because it's like, right, well, if no one can have, if one person's done that wrong, no one can have this. So I guess that's what I mean by fairness is almost like a comparative proportional fairness. But I do think we need to acknowledge that certainly flexibility working from home is a benefit to some and therefore kind of get at what the essence of that unfairness is. And it might not need to look exactly like, well, we all need to be in five days a week. So I guess I'd start with that culture system and start to understand how it shows up in different roles. And I wonder, yeah, has there been a discussion and a question around the people that are in five days a week? Are they finding that unfair? And then start to get a sense that, okay, well, what does us all in this together look like culturally? And it might be three days a week. It'd be interesting to see if it still lands at five days a week. But yeah, then going back to the the market competitiveness point, there are going to be certain roles if this is a finance department where if you're trying to bring in talent elsewhere and normally now that function doesn't have to work from the office five days a week, there's still going to be that tension. I wonder if then it's bringing in kind of other perks or benefits if you are seeing flexibility as a benefit if for some people you just you do have to be in there five days a week because you're driving the bus what other perk or benefit can we give that levels it a little bit to make it feel fairer even if it's not the exact same thing yeah I, I I've not worked in transportation but I've done quite a lot of work in retail and with local councils and one of the things you get when you chat to the organizations there the the number one pressure point for anyone who works in retail for example is knowing their shifts you know four weeks eight weeks up front and the ability to switch shifts with no friction so you know if you're if you're scheduled to work on a Saturday and then you you've got something on on that Saturday your ability ideally on an app these days, to offboard that shift or to swap it with someone else in a seamless way is regarded as transformational in terms of flexibility. And and I wonder if the, the danger is that sometimes that by saying, oh, well, because the bus drivers will go behind the buses five days a week, you think that that's a direct 
exchange with flexibility elsewhere. Whereas to some extent, what the essence of flexibility is, can I accommodate this into my life with both being in harmony as much as possible, work-life blend being sort of as harmonious as possible? And it could well be that, you know, you've got someone who works in, whether it's bus driving or whether it's retail or elsewhere, who would value doing extra shifts. And so if you give them the interface to do that and they're not in like, uh, trapped in bureaucracy, they, they feel like, oh, this is the sort of flexibility, the spirit of flexibility that I'm offered. So I think, you know, to your point, Matt, I think, um, actually trying to think not necessarily about a linear relationship. Well, if they're on site five days a week, because by extrapolation there, then the chief exec of a hospital would have to be on in the hospital seven days a week, you know, would have to work night shifts. It, it, it's not a direct parallel. I think, you know, what it generally works down to, to, to the point about all in it together is that when there is trust and a sort of sense of cohesiveness and, and probably when there's a sense that the bargain is a fair one, when people feel like I've got a good wage here, then I don't think you need to be directly linear about different teams having precisely the same terms and conditions, you know, um, th- that would be, be my take on it. But I was, uh, intriguing challenge the the realities of of these things yeah i I totally agree in terms of just finding it's like that it's a feeling of fairness which means you almost can't get to direct comparison but starting that discussion and understanding based on our culture what that looks like for each individual is probably the best place to start and yeah i am curious to know whether and i can understand maybe without that you just start to get this well this we're not in this together but when you dig deeper, is there a way to start to build that sense through other means, other rituals that maybe bring people together in different ways to foster that same shared purpose whilst yeah, allowing each role to contribute uniquely and differently? I mean, ideally, you know, when I think about tension of the culture versus market competitiveness, one of the clearest ones for me is just salary discrepancies. Think about just supply and demand. Some roles can command a much higher salary than someone else at the same level of experience, even a couple of years into the job. And often that feels the most unfair, especially someone a couple of years into the job, I'm putting in the same amount of hours, the same amount of effort, the same amount of energy, and I'm paid £10,000 less. And that often feels like, for me, the starkest example of where your ideal culture, where you might just want to have said, well, we're all in this together and we just pay a flat salary, meets the reality of yeah the market but i will to counter that there is a company in the us who have gone yeah okay well screw that and i think he pays everyone $75,000 across the company everyone gets the same high salary so i do love that there are examples where this isn't the case so i, I guess i don't want to say that well we have to just put up with it i'm excited to see people that go no screw that system we're going to find interesting things and he's been doing it for i think years and years i remember he appeared on loads of the kind of cnn american talk shows at the start where they were basically saying well this isn't going to last is it and i'm pretty sure it's like five years in and companies going well and everyone gets paid a st- the same rate. He's on the same rate as well as the CEO. So yeah, there's good examples. Yeah, I'm always interested in the story behind the story there. I once chatted to an organization called Buffer and Buffer have, number one, radical transparency. Like they show everyone, there's a spreadsheet where everyone earns the same and they can have total flexibility. People can work from anywhere they want and they can do four days a week. And then I 
decided, oh, I'll go and have a look at the financial results of Buffer. And uh, they'd done three rounds of job cuts. They were losing money. It wasn't successful. And I thought, wow, it's like, it's one of those classic things where a great PR story can really position you as something. And just by looking at the balance sheet, you get a very different perspective of, you know, look, you know, if you can work in somewhere, part of your job is if you're constantly in fear. I went to do a talk at some place last week and they were all preoccupied with job cuts. And, you know, if if a half of your working week is talking to colleagues about job cuts, then no matter of flexibility, it lives in your brain. I'd rather have job of, security. That's right. Yeah. You know, like the, the absence of job security is a really big part in people's minds. Um, and so... Yeah, it's it's just so interesting, isn't it, to try and unpick. There's another one, Basecamp. Basecamp is like one of the most famous organizations for talking about their culture. Jason Friedman. They wrote the book on it, didn't they? That's <laughs> right. Written several books on it. And yet when you look into like, Glassdoor reviews of that place and to some of the issues they've had last year, half of their employees resigned because they were told that they couldn't be political at work. You know, it's it's a long way from what they promote and what they actually experience. So like who, who can ever tell? And, and like, if you work at an organization that you think has got this right and you'd love to talk about it, you know, please do get in touch as long as it's not a PR person who gets in touch with us. We'll get Ellen to look through. She'll probably have the keenest yes. eyes. <laughs> Journalistic perspective. Another email I had was from someone who, works at an organization that specializes in temp work. Now we talked about, talk about this sort of freelance future last week. We talked about the, the idea that freelance work might end up taking up half of the workforce. And this organization uh, called Temper said that they were signing up a colossal amount of freelancers uh, all the time, actually. Specifically, they, it was really interesting that they, they said Gen Z were very fixated on freelance freelance work um so just people entering the workforce were were fixated on this and i guess you know as we talked about this last week it's an illustration that maybe this is a a big trend because that links quite nicely from your point bruce around um trying to switch shifts yeah it's it's sort of a a big watch this space i think isn't it to sort of see how it plays out It's, it's an interesting response whether people see freelancing as a response to this perpetual sense of job cuts and and systematic insecurity whether people are like okay well at least if i'm working for myself or freelancing i can feel like I'm in charge a bit more of what I'm doing. But um, it, it seems tricky in a cost of living crisis to be freelance where you've got no sense of, of job security at all. So it's interesting that it's growing right now. Yeah, and I think they added that it was also, I think the average age was 26, 27. So yeah, my assumption was maybe that it was the younger, but clearly if the average age is that, that they're seeing a boom in people signing up to freelance work and temp work I think it's also in response to the kind of flexibility thing coming back to that it's if you are in a full-time job and you can't have any movement on when you work or how you work then freelancing does feel like the only option for me personally though I still find freelancing a terrifying prospect because of the insecurity I just it terrifies me but I can see why if you were working somewhere where you don't really have any other option yeah go freelance Culturally, in the last four or five years, I think there's been a few things that have culminated in just the world of work becoming more transactional generally. With the pandemic and everyone kind of working from home, a lot of the ties which connected people 
which maybe hadn't been fully designed, but were more just based around the office kind of went away. You then had, what was it? The great resignation. And then the, whatever was the one that bounced everyone back. You had a few things economically that also meant that work was a bit more transactional. You then just have culturally younger generations spending less time at each different job. It feels like a few things have resulted in just a lot more transactional relationships with work. And that's playing out now, I think, in freelancers. It's playing out in work from home. It's playing out in people switching jobs. But one one thing we touched on last time was around what's lost with that. And someone got in touch to say that, yeah, they, they worked within learning and development and they were worried about this aspect of learning being lost by a generation that is freelance, that isn't spending time in a company where a company can put their resources towards someone's growth and career development. Mm. Do you think AI will fulfill some of that? Like, you know, I've seen people saying that they are using AI to ask the questions that they might have asked colleagues in the office. I was having a discussion with my friend around this, and we were talking about the types of roles and functions that AI currently is replacing is a lot more of those types, you know, asking questions, a lot more of the administrative tasks, which were the types of tasks when you were entering the workforce that you did as a way to get a sense of work. They weren't sexy, they weren't glamorous, they were often delegated down from more senior people because it was, yeah, more administrative. But that was essentially how when you shadowed someone, you got a sense of what the work was. You had to read that report, you had to type up that report, but that meant you knew what was happening in the meeting. With AI and let's say like large language models like ChatGPT, taking those types of functions and tasks away, what will new generations of people in the workforce spend their time working on? How will they shadow? How will they get to grips with the company when those tasks don't exist anymore? Mm. I think it's a really interesting question. Mm. I also worry about, on a kind of related note on that, what will happen to those really entry-level beginner Mm. jobs? Because if companies are just going, okay, we can get AI to do it, how is anyone going to get their foot in the door? It is really worrying. And I think that's the kind of risk point around this is our company is going to start going, okay, we'll take a risk on this less qualified person and give them a chance when there aren't those kind of easier yeah. quote unquote jobs to do. And, and I do think, I mean, there was, there was a piece of research last week that said that 82% of British managers had zero training when they'd become a manager. And so, you know, the first thing you think about is that uh, the impression I get from reading all the AI stuff that I read is that November this year is going to have another quickening where I think all of these organizations are launching their AI assistants. Effectively, you can task someone every day to bring you press clippings on something. You can task someone to keep an eye f- out for a flat at a certain price you, you, a bot to do these things like a, a level of automation that we've not yet had yet and what you would say i guess is a workplace response to that is okay but if you bring someone into the workplace and you give them good training they will be more valuable than that bot but if at the moment organizations aren't even training their managers then i suspect most people who are joining jobs are not getting training and it just 
it. It's the difference between the idealized version of work, which is where you bring someone in, you train them. If you've ever seen someone who's gone into medical sales, somebody who goes into medical sales has to spend three months learning about medicine. They have to learn, there's like proper training on it. I've, I've always been astonished. Whereas anyone who goes into sell, you know, anything else, broadly is given a computer and at a desk and told, go, go away and do it. And the idealized version of work, I think, probably could deal with this AI bot challenge. The real version of work, I think, might be uh, really exposed to it. I think that's going to be a huge gulf in terms of talent and around these junior roles. You know, Ellen, you were saying, what does an, why would they hire an entry-level person? And then also, if they do hire an entry-level person, what is that entry-level person actually spending their time on? The idealized version is, well, the manager can spend time with them because they're not having to do certain tasks, but we're not seeing that play out even now. I think Sam Altman, you know, the the non-cynical uh, decision behind releasing it, I think he says it was he didn't want companies to be caught off guard by this revolution. So he wanted to slowly introduce it so that companies could start playing with it and so that they could start to rethink and reshape jobs. And I think we're at least starting to see that a little bit around tasks being outsourced. But I think the second order implications on talent aren't being considered. Like what will happen to junior roles in jobs? And I'm not seeing much of a discussion around that. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Maybe a, a final piece, uh, an example of late stage capitalism, uh, which is everything in service of productivity at all costs. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Was a article I saw in Metro headline, forget the morning coffee, have an orgasm to boost productivity. Okay. Very late stage. <laughs> it just really felt like, well, like tech bros, Silicon Valley, trying to eke out every single possible thing. You know, I wake up at 4am to start my first day. My second day starts at midday. I'm already on to day three, you know, and it just feels like we can't even have this moment for ourselves without it being in service of greater gains. So yeah, if someone, you know, earlier, if someone asks you what you're up to at the weekend and you're not allowed to talk about anything personal, well, there's a work reason now to talk about it, I guess. I'll tell you, this gives me horror flashbacks to working at Metro a few years ago, um, where I think it must have been 2016 or 2018, someone was saying they wanted to give their employees masturbation breaks to up their productivity. So they were really encouraging that instead of smoking, because the link between orgasm and productivity is so high. So this has been going for quite some time and I'm very familiar with the discussions of it. Um, wow. I don't, it's, I think HR wouldn't be very happy. There's a, um, a Simon Pegg sketch from the show Big Train which is literally a manager, a new manager coming in and telling I've everyone they can no longer do that at work. I just <laughs> thought we were joking. I didn't know Metro was actually, I didn't know that was a documentary. <laughs> Fabulous. Love the discussion as ever. Um, if you're interested in this, these, uh, these hundreds of previous episodes, so thank you so much for listening. And I've been Bruce Daisley. I've been Ellen Scott. I've been Matt Cook. We'll see you next time. <laughs>